Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let us pray. Lord God, you have declared that your kingdom is among us. Open our eyes to see it, our ears to hear it, our hearts to hold it, and our hands to serve it. Thus we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith should be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Before we begin to read our Old Testament reading, it's important for us to set the scene just a little bit to understand why it is that Jezebel is trying to go after Elijah in the story that Jay just told us and the children. You see, Jezebel is a big supporter of Baal, a rival god to Yahweh. They're in contest, and Elijah suggests that they go up to the Mount Carmel, Carmel, And they have a showdown between Yahweh and this other god, Baal. The prophets of Baal and Yahweh gather together, and they contest to see which god could answer by alighting the altar on Mount Carmel on fire, therefore determining which god is the greatest. As you may know the story, the Baal prophets went first, and yet Baal never responds, and he forfeits. But God responds, Yahweh comes down and consumes the burned offering, all the stones and the dust, and even the water surrounding the altar and the tenches. Everyone there was amazed by what this Yahweh had done, and more than that, they were convinced by what this Yahweh had done. The prophets of Baal fell on their faces and returned to worshiping Yahweh. Yahweh is God, they cried. And as soon as they had pledged their allegiance to Yahweh, Elijah killed them all, some 450 of them. And so now we continue our story with the reading from the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then Elijah lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. Elijah looked. And there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. So Elijah got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food for forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered, And God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks into pieces before the Lord, But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been thinking a lot about sanctuaries this week. We have a beautiful sanctuary here, a place for lovely music. We have a beautiful table for our meal together. We have a font that allows us together and receive new people into our community. But a sanctuary is also something more than just the building that we're in. Sanctuary is something that a building and what's in it cannot guarantee for us. A sanctuary is a safe place, a place where we can be vulnerable with one another a place where we can trust each other, even trust each other enough to speak and hear each other hard truths about ourselves and about the world that we live in together. 
A sanctuary is a place where everyone present can presume, can make the presumption that they are welcome here. I deliberately try not to read the news in the morning before I go to work. And so here in our sanctuary last Sunday, I learned for the first time of the massacre that took place in Orlando. As my colleague stood behind this holy table and spread her arms before us and lifted up to God the plight of our world, those in our community who are sick, those in our country who are poor, and those in Orlando who had been shot and killed, those who grieve for them. And we prayed for the peace of the world. A sanctuary, too, can be a place where we can grieve together. We can cry together and lament together as last week's news causes us to do. It's a place that we trust that our bad news will always be met with good news in this space. What it is that we have a safe place. What a gift. What a wonderful thing that we have a place to be ourselves in community, to retreat from the world and find peace here together. We learned very quickly after the shooting in Orlando that it had taken place in a gay bar called Pulse and that overwhelmingly the victims were LGBTQ people. My friend Jessica posted something on Facebook this week that stretched for me what it means to have, make, and keep a sanctuary. Jessica said that she kept thinking about sanctuary and the role that gay bars have played as sanctuary for LGBTQ people and the gay community. Jessica says, it seems worth noting that I am both part of the LGBT community and yet still deeply committed to the life of the church. Jessica says she still believes in the power that faith communities have to transform lives and be places of healing for people and be a place where systems can be confronted with change. Jessica believes this enough that she plans to be ordained in the future. But then Jessica continues with something that astonished me and in the same way breaks my heart. She says, I will also say that I have never been able to exhale, never been able to breathe as deeply, to know that I was safe to be myself as fully in a church as I have in a gay bar. Bars became the sanctuary for LGBTQ people when the churches wouldn't have them, she said. And they still are. Mark Jordan, who is a theologian at Harvard Div School, drew an even more astonishing connection, I think. He said, I'm sure that at Pulse on Saturday night in that ritual space, as the usual congregants gathered, there were those star dancers, the ones who knew the floors, textures, and who could anticipate the scintillating changes of rhythm that would mark a Latin night. 
with old-timers who mostly watched, passing admiring or acerbic comments to friends. That's the equivalent of a whisper in the pews. At least one person, I'm sure, Jordan says, at least one person fairly new to the clubs, a little nervous, maybe bruised by harsh judgments at home or in the church, there was someone at Pulse that Saturday night who stepped onto the dance floor for the first time and in astonished relief at being free to move. I'm sure there are many of us here who remember walking into a church for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, nervous, maybe bruised by bad church experiences as children, or maybe by families that drug us to church against our own will. And many of us, and I know this is true from some of you, we came into the church and found the family that redeemed for us the very notion of what a family is. Or perhaps in the church we found in our deepest despair of grief or depression or divorce that in this community there are people who can walk with us, walk beside us, who can contain our anxiety, with whom we can share our deepest fears, joys, and hurts. That's what a sanctuary is. A sanctuary is a safe place, a place where we can be vulnerable, a place where we can presume that we are welcome. We at First Pres know that sanctuaries are delicate places to preserve. Only this last Friday we marked the one-year anniversary of Mother Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where a young white man was welcomed fully into that community of Christians, and he proceeded to shoot and kill nine of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And just this last Sunday, the day that we learned of the events in Orlando, our congregation practiced for the first time an evacuation drill at the end of the service, just so as to be prepared. God forbid something were to threaten our community, our sanctuary community. But that's just what happened in Charleston and at the club in Orlando And in a sense, that's what happens everywhere that these sacred places, these sanctuaries, are desecrated. Elijah's story, which we have heard, read, and sung, is one of the deepest and of the deepest laments in all the scriptures. It's a fitting text for this day as it is with any day in which we are laid bare by the power of and the presence of evil in this world that God managed somehow to still call good. Here we have one of the great Old Testament prophets who is so troubled by Jezebel slaying the prophets of Israel that he takes the prophets of Baal and Yahweh up to the top of the mountain at the old sanctuary, Mount Carmel, for a showdown. 
Yahweh, of course, is the only God to show up. And so the Baal prophets see the light and they turn to God. They are good with God now. All is well. Rain is coming. Yahweh is God. And the sanctuary at Mount Carmel is restored forever. But somewhere in Elijah's zealousness came a subtle and haunting sense of victory and supremacy and superiority when all was about to go well for Israel. Elijah retaliates with the force of Jezebel. He slays the 450 prophets of Baal, former prophets, that is, in cold blood on God's holy altar. It is imperative in this story to remember that it is not God who commands Elijah to do this. Elijah kills on his own accord. Violence begets violence, the old saying goes. So when Jezebel hears what Elijah has done to these prophets, Elijah sends a messenger and tells Elijah that Jezebel sends this messenger and tells Elijah that I'm going to kill you because of this. And it scares Elijah, sure enough, just as it should. He flees with deep regret, just like a crazy man who has finally come to self-consciousness, realizing that he has turned into a monster. And he cowers into defeat. He falls asleep under a broom tree in the wilderness, ready to die for everything that has gone wrong. Everything he's done, the people of Israel, the prophets of Baal, it is enough, Elijah cries, it is enough. I have to admit that this is the first time in reading this text that I realized in any kind of significant way that Jezebel is not the only religious terrorist in this story. And it's uncomfortable to concede that with Elijah being the great prophet and all. But Elijah is not innocent in this story. I don't see how he can be. Jezebel may have been the direct instigator of the violence, but it is clear that Elijah had a hand in it as well. Mendelssohn's aria, It Is Enough, which we have heard, conveys this lament of Elijah. He is lamenting the people who have died, the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Yahweh, He is lamenting that the people of Israel has turned away from their God. He is lamenting that Jezebel has done evil and led Ahab to do evil. And he laments himself, knowing that he too has desecrated God's sanctuary with violence. I think of our church this week. And I think of our society as well, for that matter, in the wake of what happened in that club of Orlando and what happens in all of these desecrated sanctuaries where violence takes up the space where welcome should be. We lament what has happened. We lament for what people have died, what people have suffered because loved ones have died, That those safe places that so many in the world count on churches, clubs, families, where have you, 
that these safe places have been desecrated. Some of us might work for measures to keep guns out of the hands of killers, but all of us, I think, come together in a time of supporting others who are in this sort of suffering. Many of you, some in our choir and others all over Ann Arbor, and, and um, participated in the Requiem for Orlando at Hill Auditorium, a great collage of people coming together in support of what is going on. And that's something that we do together every Sunday as we come and we pray at this table, this table which God calls all people to join. We pray for them. But I am grateful for what many of our LGBTQ friends, brothers and sisters, have lovingly challenged us about in this last week. And it has been a challenge of love. And that is that as a church and as a society, we are not blameless in the wake of something like Orlando. That just as easy as it is to let Elijah off the hook in the face of what Jezebel has done on Mount Carmel, it is ever so tempting to look squarely in the face of the killer who has killed so many gay people and not look to ourselves to see how we perpetuate Things like homophobia, racism, hate, and how we shun those who may be different from us. Our LGBTQ brothers and sisters have challenged us to recall who we are as a church, what we've been, who we're supposed to be. And we have to recall that the church still often is the main teacher of homophobia to our society, that the church in the past has been complicit and often actively supporter of slavery, of segregation, of Jim Crow, and is still often complicit in the problems we have with our mass punishment and mass incarceration of people of color. Our friends are lovingly putting a mirror before us a mirror that we're not always able to see through ourselves. And so even as we lament the deaths of Orlando, we are called to look in the mirror a little bit, to look at our own sin, which has been placed so clearly before our very eyes, and we are supposed to look at ourselves and ask lovingly and graciously, how have we not been truly welcome in our sanctuary? How have we failed to speak for those who have no voice in which to speak? How have we responded to violence with more violence? Or responded to hate with more hate? How much are we willing to change? How much are we willing to make ourselves uncomfortable so as to help others feel welcome in our midst. It is enough. It's all too much. Elijah takes stock of his sinfulness. He is resolved to die, just die under the broom tree. He laments that he is no better than Israel, no better than his ancestors, 
and I suspect that he is right about that. Elijah is the failed prophet, the one who has done wrong in the sight of God, done wrong in the sight of his fellow Israelites. But as bad news is confronted with good news in the sanctuary, our text today reminds us that God still uses failed and sinful prophets that God still can use a failed and sinful church. God sends an angel to come to Elijah in self-pity. Get up and eat, says the angel. You will need this nourishment for the journey ahead because there is a prophetic journey ahead that does not end with death but with prophecy. Elijah makes it a little farther to Horeb, and he hides in a a cleft in the rock, kind of like Moses did. And yet he will not confront his God, God, God ever so gently, but not in fire, not in flame, not in earthquakes or wind. God does not do that to call Elijah out in silence, in tender compassion. God comes to Elijah and says that, come out of there, you have work still to do. You have sinned, yes, you are a sinner, you have failed, and yet there is still sanctuary, there is still room for welcome, there is still a place for you to be welcoming others. God in Jesus Christ has called us who are the gathered community of the church into God's prophetic ministry of building a sanctuary in the world, a place to be vulnerable, a place to trust one another, a place to welcome, and a place where we can presume that we too are welcome And we can act like it. God God calls us to a place where people are astonished at being really free to move. A place where we can all exhale and breathe deeply together knowing that we can be ourselves and be loved by our God and one another anyway. That's what God desires for the sanctuary that the church is in the world. That's what God desires for the whole world. In closing, I want to offer for us a prayer of repentance. And this is not something that I do alone or you do alone, but something that we do on behalf of the church in every time and place to all those people and places which the church has desecrated past, present, and future. And so I ask you to pray with me The Lord be with you. God, who welcomes all, we pray not that you would keep us safe, but that we would be faithful even when our safety is at stake. Encourage us in your work of love and reconciliation. We confess that we have sinned both actively 
and sinned by omission. Help us to see our sin and repent from the ways that we have closed ourselves and our communities off from others. We are sorry to you, O God, and sorry to those whom we have hurt. Help us to be trustworthy partners in reconciliation, in support. Help us hear stories of grief. Help us share in times of joy. Give us a voice for the voiceless, hope for the hopeless. Speak tenderly in a still small voice to those who are in grief. And speak thunderously to the rest of us. For this is the sanctuary that your Son, Jesus Christ, calls us to embody. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.